We're going to continue in our series, which is called A New Thing. We're studying the book of Acts, which is the history of about the first 40 years of the church following the death and the resurrection of Jesus as the message of Jesus was being taken to the entire world. And so we've been looking the last few weeks at this fellow named Paul, who more than any other person, one single person in history, in, his, in those 40 years, or in fact, Paul spent about 25 or 30 years of those 40 taking the message throughout the entire Mediterranean world. I think there should be a map up there to show a little bit of what that was all about. I think there should be a map. There it is. There it is. All right. I knew it was going to pop up there. All right. Uh, but Paul took the gospel message across the Mediterranean world. Uh, and what he was saying was this, that he... The basis of his message was this, that he himself, who had once been the the guy who hated the name of Jesus more than any other, and who had tried to stamp the name of Jesus out, this false Jesus rumor, the silly idea that Jesus resurrected from the dead, this ignorant belief that these people called Christians were running around trying to fanatically get people to believe in. Paul was out to destroy that from the face of the earth until one day, as we've heard, he himself personally encountered and experienced the risen Jesus. Jesus revealed himself to him. And then Paul spent the next 25 years taking this message at great personal sacrifice to himself to the entire world. And then finally, after those 25 years, he went back to the city of Jerusalem to the hornet's nest of opposition, the city that had killed Jesus, because Paul wanted to go back thinking that the Jewish leaders, they're ready to hear the message. Well, Paul gets there, and he finds that's not the case at all. Instead, he got arrested for being a a, a revolutionary, and the Jewish council got him arrested and hauled off to jail. And then Paul ends up in Caesarea, which is about 70 miles northwest of Jerusalem, which was the seat of the Roman governor at that time. And when Paul gets there, he appeals his case to Caesar in Rome. Now, I'm just, I'm catching up here from what we've looked at the last couple weeks. I'm trying to set the stage for this message this morning. So now Paul sits in jail for two years until a new governor whose name is Festus comes to power. Now, Festus doesn't know quite what to do with Paul. So when King Agrippa, who ruled over some of the areas in Israel and Judea, he was an expert on understanding Jewish people. He came and paid a visit to Festus because he was the new governor. And and Festus arranged to have a meeting with Paul because he thought maybe Agrippa can help me understand this guy. So the meeting set up. Festus and Agrippa are there, and the scripture says that they're dressed in all their royal regal robes, and along with them are several of the high-ranking Roman officials and the Roman commanders. So the elite of the city, uh, they've gathered in this room to hear Paul. Paul comes in. Luke says that his, his wrists are in chains. Paul's been in chains for two years now, sitting in a prison, as I said, and you would think after two years of his case being delayed and just sitting there, Paul would have come out fighting. He would have come out raging and lashing out at these guys for the injustice. But that's not the picture we get. 
Instead, Paul sees this as a great opportunity to share the message of Jesus with such a royal, influential group of people. Paul never missed an opportunity to share the name of Jesus with people. Now, how is that? Well, I want you to take a look at this picture. What do you see up there? All right. Well, we see a a tree above the ground, and we see a root system underneath. And I think this represents, this tree, this root system, represents the new, the brand new way that the Apostle Paul, after he met Christ, began to view people. He learned to see people in a new way. Now, people, the tree above the surface, that represents the, li- the part of our lives that everybody sees, what we see in each other here today. But all of us human beings have a very deep root system underneath, and, and those roots sink down into layer after layer after layer of stuff that's hidden underground. Nobody else ever sees it. Well, Paul, at one time in his life, the way he saw people, he, he saw them on the surface. And Paul based all of his judgments and his attitudes about people upon what he saw in their behavior above the ground. Uh, and I'll guarantee you, at one time, Paul coming out here to a Roman official and a King Agrippa, who I'll describe a little bit in a moment, he would have come out raging and judging and calling down the fire of God on these guys. He would have considered these guys just looking at what was going on in their lives. So so what was going on in their lives? Well, we don't know an awful lot about Festus except that he was a Roman and Jewish people hated the Romans because they were their oppressors. And they did a lot of oppressing too. Uh, Now, Agrippa, we know a little bit more about him from history, not only from the scripture, but from that famous first century uh, historian named Josephus. It's quite a description of Agrippa. He's Agrippa II. His his sister, Bernice, was also in this meeting with him. Uh, They were raised in a very, very dysfunctional family. Uh, His grandfather, Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, is the one who had had all the babies in Bethlehem killed, trying to get rid of Jesus, trying to, you know, the rumor of Jesus' birth, trying to get, trying to get rid of that. Uh, his father was not much better. Uh, now, and the others, and the, so they had, they had a lot of, so when we look at this root system, what, what's under that root system? There's two things. Uh, the things that we do wrong in life, the, we call them sins, and we all, we all have things hidden down deep inside of our lives that we have done wrong. Nobody else may see it, but we know it. And under the, under the root system, or under the underground there is also, it represents the, the wounds of our life, the wounds of our past, the, the damage that's been done to our lives. So when I talk about the fact that Agrippa and Bernice had been raised in an extremely dysfunctional family, these were two very, very wounded people. In fact is, it was more than a rumor that Agrippa and Bernice, they were brother and sister, but they were living in some pretty sexually inappropriate relationships with each other. So they had some problems in their lives. Uh, And as I said, the old Paul, he would have jumped on this and he would have just called the fire of God down. But Paul is showing us here how followers of Jesus 
see people in a brand new way. How people, how, how Christians, followers of Jesus, reach out to people with, and see, seeing their value. And a Christian never puts themselves in the seat of God. God is the judge. We can't take that seat. In fact, if you go back to the Garden of Eden, the story of what Adam and Eve did, when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what that really means is, it was at the center of the garden. It means that they were putting them, themselves in the seat of those who can determine what is right and wrong. They were taking God's place as judge. You know, the most deadly disease of humanity, the, 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 the sin that Jesus most often exorciated, he just got down on was when a human being makes themselves a judge. And so when we look at people based upon what we see in their in the behavior and attitudes at the surface of their life, we are making horrible misjudgments and we're failing to see the value of that human being. Now, we, this is Mom's Day, Mother's Day. There can be lots of wounds. We celebrate and honor all of our moms. But you know, someday, some, there can be some hurting moms in this room here today. Uh, I know we have some moms in this room who have experienced the greatest pain that a mom can, and that's losing one of their children. I don't know how, that, I don't know how a person can endure that, but there are some moms here that have walked through that. Uh, there are, some mom, there, there are some people here today, who, some women here today, who probably wanted to be a mom, and it just hasn't happened. Or maybe, maybe you're here, and the relationship between yourself and your mom, it's just not something that you really can celebrate. We have that reality in our world too, don't we? Those are the wounds. Those are what we see. Those are what we walk around with under the surface of our lives. Maybe there's a mom here who's come through the pain of divorce. We don't know the story behind all that. So we have to be extremely careful. I would, I would take a moment for every Christian in this room, every follower of Jesus, let's do a spiritual health checkup because the most deadly disease that can creep into a Christian's heart is to, be, is to make unfair judgments about other people instead of being a person that everybody loves to be around. May God help us to be the kind of person, whether we're in church or outside of church, whoever we're with, even if we're standing here like Paul before our accusers, there was something in Paul's life that witnessed to them about how he cared for them, how he loved them. That's got to be the witness that we share with our world. Anyhow, so, now, so Paul has the floor. And what does he say? Well, Luke tells us what he says. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you may speak in your defense. So Paul gesturing with his hand, and I know I do a lot of gesturing with my hands too, so I'm right there with Paul, okay. Uh, in, that in that regard, okay, all right. Paul, gesturing with his hand, started his defense. And he says this, I am fortunate, King Agrippa, that you are the one hearing my defense today against all these accusations made by the Jewish leaders, for I know that you are an expert on all Jewish customs and controversies. See how respectfully he's talking to Agrippa. Now, please listen to me patiently. As the Jewish leaders are well aware, I was given a thorough Jewish training from my earliest childhood among among my own people and in Jerusalem, if they would admit it, they would know that I have been a member of the Pharisees, the strictest sect of our religion. 
Now I am on trial because of my hope in the fulfillment of God's promise made to our ancestors. In fact, that is why the 12 tribes of Israel zealously worship God day and night, and they share the same hope I have. And yet, your majesty, they accuse me for having this hope. Why does it seem incredible to any of you that God can raise the dead? What Paul is simply saying is, all of the prophets of the Old Testament had promised the day when the Savior would come. And now Paul says, I'm, he has come. He's come in a way beyond what we would have ever imagined. He didn't come just to set up a kingdom. He came to be our Savior, to die on a cross and rise from the dead. But now I'm going around telling this hope, but you, it's landed me in jail. The very thing we've hoped for down through the centuries. Then he asked this question, and I think this is a really important question. Why does it seem incredible to any of you that God can raise the dead, that Jesus would be risen from the dead? Now, I want to direct that question here today, too. Perhaps you are a person who you cannot entertain the assumption that anything so miraculous as Jesus truly resurrecting from the dead could ever possibly happen. So perhaps I'm speaking to some people here today whose mind is sort of closed to that idea. I would like to suggest this, though. If your mind is closed to the supernatural and the miraculous, I would suggest that you have locked yourselves in to a very limited, narrow view of reality. Nothing wider, nothing deeper to our significance as human beings, our meaning. And to hold this kind of narrow view, I think requires every human being to suppress, I would, I would say sort of suffocate the deep longings and imagination inside of us that cry out day and night for a much richer, deeper meaning to the story, to the human story. You know, the movie Tolkien is out right now. I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan. I read the books back in the 70s, and I know some of you weren't even born then. Uh, I digested those books, and those books are thick books. His publishers never thought they would sell because they're, they're very thick and very few pictures, okay? Uh, so, <clears throat> but anyway, Tolkien was a master of imagination. And so once you got into those books, no pictures. He didn't need pictures. It, he, took, he, lifted, he, he took you out. <laughs> into, he impacted your, your, your imagination, your soul, your spirit. But here, you know, in Tolkien, here's what he taught about the human imagination. He said, imagination is a uniquely human gift that points to the longing we all have <clears throat> to belong to a big ultimate story that gives our lives ultimate meaning. A story beyond simply the material, physical things that take up most of our attention. Tolkien believed that modern people are suffocating their spirits, suffocating their imaginations, and reducing what it trying to live in a very reductionistic view of what it means to be human. He believed that modern human beings are suffocating, are suffocating their spirits. And ultimately, he believed they were suffocating their desire for God. Tolkien 
I'm not sure everybody knows this, but Tolkien was a very devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And he's the one who led C.S. Lewis to Christ as well. So if you hold to this narrow position, I would like you, I'd like to ask for a moment, if you, if you would agree at least that if what Paul is saying about Jesus' resurrection really did happen, if it really did happen, would you agree that it would be an earth-shaking statement shouting out that God is real? And would you agree that it would be the most significant statement ever in history of hope offered to human beings on this planet? You see, Paul is asking this crowd of distinguished leaders to consider just that and to keep listening. Now, Paul goes on to tell them there was a time in his life when he didn't believe this. As I said a little bit ago, he despised this entire idea. He thought that the idea that anyone would rise from the dead is pure silliness. It was baloney, a rumor of fanatics. Paul says this in, in chap, in, in, uh, as we go on to read in verse 9. He says, I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus the Nazarene. Indeed, I did that in Jerusalem. Authorized by the leading priest, I caused many believers there to be sent to prison. And I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. Many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. Can you picture Paul going in here and arresting people and saying, okay, you've got one choice. Step up here and deny that you've ever heard, that you deny Jesus. Curse him. If you'll curse him, you'll live. If you don't curse him, you die. That was Paul. And yet what Paul saw, beginning with Stephen, the first martyr, he saw Stephen die praying for the people that were stoning him. And then he went on to arrest and kill countless others, and he saw the same kind of loving, gracious attitude this, that was unbelievable to Paul. I'm going to say more about that in just a minute. But anyway, uh, Paul goes on, then, and he, okay, he goes on, and then he says this to the rest of the crowd. Let me read some of the words he says. His testimony, he gives his testimony. He says, one day, I was on a mission to Damascus. And now, we've covered this story a couple times already, so I'm just going to summarize it. Paul is on his way to Damascus to kill some more Christians. He gets up close to the city, and Paul says this bright light sh came shining down from heaven. He fell to the ground. And Jesus Christ revealed himself to him. In fact, this is how Paul says it. We all fell down, and I heard a voice saying to me, in Aramaic, Paul says. And that would have been the language that Jesus spoke during his three years of ministry. He spoke in Hebrew Aramaic. And so he says, Saul, Saul, that was Saul, Paul's Hebrew name. Why are you persecuting me? It is useless for you to fight against my will. And then Paul asks this question. He hear God speaking to him. But Paul is asking, God, identify yourself to me. And this is the answer. He says, who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one that you are persecuting. That's who Jesus Christ is. And that's who Jesus Christ said he was during those three years of ministry. Again and again and again, Jesus said, I am the Son of God, sent, Savior, Redeemer. 
And several times over, Jesus repeatedly stated, I have the power to lay my life down. I have the power to take my life up again. And Jesus foretold his own resurrection. And then the scripture goes on. Jesus says to Paul, get on your feet, for I have appeared to you to appoint you as my servant and witness. Tell people that you, that you have seen me and tell them what I will show you in the future. And I will rescue from you from both your own people and the Gentiles. Yes, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. Now, I want to come back to uh, the heart of what Paul just said right there. This is the message, the essence of the message that he preached when he went around to people and what he was sharing that day. He says, I preached first to those in Damascus, then Jerusalem, that, and throughout all Judea, and also to the Gentiles. Here it is. That all must repent of their sins and turn to God and prove or demonstrate that they have changed their lives that true change has occurred by the things that they do, by the life they, they go on to live. The heart of the message about Jesus, the major word, is repent. Paul got that straight from Jesus because when Jesus came into the world, the first thing, the thing he went around saying, he said, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Repentance is the door into this reality that goes beyond this limited reality we've shrunk ourselves down into. Retent, repentance leads to a personal revelation of Jesus Christ to the person that will humble themselves and come to him repentantly. So let's explain what that word means. The word repent in the Greek language in which Paul was writing this letter, or in which Luke was writing this letter, it means to change your mind and change directions. It really means I have been living my life with my back turned toward God, walking away from him, maybe even running away from him, maybe even resisting, angry, doubting, just my back turned and running away from God. Repentance is a mental response to the Holy Spirit tugging at a human heart, a human mind, to turn back toward God. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He comes and convicts us deep inside. He helps us see our need for God. He helps us see that God is the one who can redeem us and forgive us of all of our sins. That's what Paul experienced. I just read a moment ago. When, and, and when Paul, the Lord said to Paul, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting, in verse number 14. If you go back and look at the, uh, the actual grammar, the Greek grammar of that sentence, what it's referring to is something that wouldn't make much sense to us today. What he really says there, Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. What does that mean? Well, back in those days, farmers would, uh, in order to get their oxen to go the direction they wanted them to go, they had these sharp, these sticks with a pointed end. And so to, to keep the oxen moving, going forward where they want them to go, they would keep poking them. Well, that's what the Holy Spirit had been doing inside Paul's heart while he was out persecuting Christians and seeing their witness and the depth of their faith. 
it began, the Holy Spirit began to poke his conscience and to poke his heart and to sort of move him toward, toward God until Paul was finally at a place on that Damascus road where he repented. And, and when he repented, the reality of Jesus Christ came flooding into his life. And you know, that's what Paul is saying will happen to every person that repents, comes with faith and repents to Jesus Christ. Now, does that mean that you're going to walk out of here today or be walking down the street of Lamont this week sometime and all of a sudden there's going to be a bright light that shines down out of heaven and you're going to fall on the ground? Does it mean you're going to have the identical sort of very, very dramatic experience that Paul had in his conversion? No, most people don't have that. I'm not saying that couldn't happen, okay, but I've not talked to anyone lately, okay, all right, uh, who has shared that with me. But here's what will happen. When you come to God repenting, you will meet Jesus Christ. Jesus promises, and this is the heart of his message, Jesus promises to reveal himself deeply to you at the very deepest level of human awareness. We call that our spirit. It's, it'll be like turning a light switch on in a dark room, and the presence of Jesus Christ will come flooding into that dark room with God's light, with the light of his life. And you, the result of that will be, you will begin to be filled with an awareness of God that you did not think was possible. Now, I can tell you that from my own personal experience. That happened in my life. And there are tens of thousands of Christians and millions of Christians who can testify to that reality. And the reason so many thousands and thousands of these followers of Jesus, they weren't being glued to this new faith by some sort of a goofy rumor they were, they were tied to the faith because they had had a personal experience of Jesus Christ himself. That's why they were willing to die for their faith. That's what changed Paul from the, from the enemy to the proponent of this faith. We can meet him when we come to him in repentance. God reveals himself to the humble heart. So, the experience, uh, here's something else about the experience of repentance. It leads to the greatest moment of honesty with ourselves as the Holy Spirit shows us our hearts and we come clean before God. It's the most freeing moment any human being can experience because you don't have to hide anything anymore. You know, that's, that's tremendous freedom. That's like a big weight being lifted off your shoulders when you don't have to hide. You don't have to hide from God. You don't have to hide from yourself. You don't have to project this false image that makes you look better than you really are. Don't have to do that anymore. We can be honest. We can be transparent. We don't have to try to prove that we're better than we are. We can be honest. The very definition of humility is not thinking more highly of yourself than you should or more lowly of yourself than you should. God is the only one who can give us an accurate perception of ourselves, of who we are. And it comes through repentance, humbling ourselves before him. The other thing that the Lord does when we come to him in repentance, he not only uh, 
And it can be painful. He not only points out those areas of our life that are outside of his boundaries that we call sin, the things that we're doing that are wrong. He does that, but he does it for our own good. Uh, The other thing he does is Jesus' presence is in our life to take all of those sorrows, all of those wounds, all of that damage from the past, the things that have hurt us, the things that have impacted our lives. He's there to begin to encourage us and to give us hope. He's there one by one to begin to give us comfort and strength that we didn't know we could never have found in ourselves to deal with some of those hurts and some of those wounds. And he also puts us, makes us part of a community of believers who are no longer going to be judging us based upon what they see upon the surface but are going to be part of his outstretched arms and care to reach out to one another. Because we've all been wounded. We all are carrying stuff around underneath. We're all carrying around damage from the past. Every single one of us. That's the message of Christ. That's what, Christ, that's what happens when Christ comes into a person's life. So this is not, we're not talking about some mystical, not some kind of a faith, hey, just believe this, believe this thing, it's some mysticism. We're not talking about that. We're talking about something that, we're talking about a Jesus Christ who really did live in Palestine. He walked around the city of Jerusalem. He walked around Galilee. He sailed on the Lake of Galilee. He went to the Dead Sea. He lived there. Archaeology confirms it. It's, It's real. He lived. And Jesus is credible. Because still today, even people that don't believe in him will quote his ethical wisdom, greatest the world's ever seen. Love your neighbor, the story of the prodigal son, the good Samaritan. That's who Jesus is. But he also came to be yours and my very, very personal redeemer and savior, revealing himself, his presence to human beings. We were created above everything else, to know God. That's why we were made. So Paul is simply standing here before these dignitaries and in any way he can, expressing what the gospel is all about. But here are their reactions. Uh, they're both, the reactions of both Festus and of Agrippa II are recorded. So let's take a look at Festus' reaction first. Uh, it says this in, uh, uh, in verse number 24. <laughs> okay. It says, Suddenly Festus shouted, Paul, you're insane. Too much study has made you crazy. So, that's probably not what Paul was hoping for from Festus. But that's exactly, that, this is honest. This is an honest report. Uh, now, why did Festus, as a Roman, he was a Roman, a Roman official, Roman citizen, why would this idea of a bodily resurrection, why would he say that's insane, Paul? Well, because the belief system of the Romans, the whole point of death is to break free from these physical bodies into a spirit realm. And the idea of dying only to come back with a physical body into a world like this That didn't seem like any kind of salvation at all to him. He could not accept bodily resurrection. That went against everything he had been taught. He had what you would call an escape 
theology. He would say this, this world is a mess. It's full of pain and injustice. This world is decaying. It's filled with death. And including us, we're dying. So why would anybody ever want to get resurrected and come back into this? But what he didn't understand is this, that the whole point of Jesus' resurrection is that Jesus is going to restore and renew all things in all of creation. Beginning with the renewal and restoration of our lives, Jesus is going to go on one of these days to restore the whole natural world to be what God intended it to be. He's going to give us brand new bodies with physical properties that are going to live in health for all of eternity. And he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth that looks like Eden before we turned our backs on God and lost it. It's coming back. That's the power of the resurrection. And then Paul, re and so, so Paul says back to Festus, he says, he says it this way. Uh, well, he basically says, he says, Paul replied, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. He's still treating him with respect. What I am saying, what I am saying is sober truth. Now, when Paul uses the words, words sober truth, he's using one Greek word right there. The Greek is pronoun pronounced like this, and I'm not Greek. I can't pronounce it like a Greek would do it, but here's my best stab at it. Sophos sophrostony. It was a word used in philosophy that simply means reasonable and rational. Paul is saying, what I'm telling you is reasonable and rational. I am telling you a message that is rooted in fact, in history. Jesus lived, he taught, he died, and then he rose again. And he's alive and revealed himself to those who come repentantly to him. And Paul is saying, this is rational because if you will take that step and humble yourself and come to Jesus, even with your doubts, if you'll come, repenting of your sin, you will meet Jesus Christ, and he will forgive you. He will come flooding in with that sense of God's awareness that you never thought possible. And you know what? Jesus presented himself as the very center of all reality, as God. And if we're looking for someone to make rational sense out of life, and put all the pieces of life together, there's nothing better we could do than come to Jesus Christ because that's who he is. He's the one who does pull things together and hold things together. So what about Agrippa's response? Verses 26 to 30, this is, this is what, it, what it says. Uh, it says, Paul uh, then turns to Agrippa. He says, King Agrippa knows about these things. I speak boldly, for I am sure these events are all familiar to him for they weren't done in a corner. Agrippa lived in Palestine. He, he, he probably saw Jesus. He knew about all this stuff. They were not done in a corner. And then he says directly to King Agrippa, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And then Paul continues a sentence, and he says, I know you do. And then Paul gets cut off. He gets interrupted. Verse 28 says, Agrippa interrupted him. And then he says this to Paul. Do you, and I think most scholars, scholars will say he probably was saying this, this sarcastically. Do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian so quickly? And Paul replied, whether quickly or not, I pray to God that both you and everyone here in this audience might become the same as I am. He meant a follower of Jesus, 
the same as I am, except for being in these chains. So, here's the point, and I'm going to wrap it up here. Uh, Human beings can resist God. If we have never turned to the Lord, we can resist the Holy Spirit when he calls us, does that nudging in our minds to come and receive Christ, to come repentantly. He calls us to repent. What is that call to repentance? I'll tell you what it is. It is God's invitation to an eternal change of direction in your life. If I've spent all of my life, God's over there and I've got my back turned toward him and I'm living my own life, building my own life, doing my own thing, I don't need God, I'm I'm doing my own thing, then the path you're walking on is a dead-end street. It's taking you away from God, and it will take you away from God for all eternity. However, so what repentance is, is that change of mind and change of direction. When the Holy Spirit convicts me, I turn around and I, I face God. And then I begin to walk toward God. And, and what, this, what this walk toward God is, it's his invitation into a life in him that will go on forever and ever and ever. So to resist the Holy Spirit and his call to repentance is the most damaging thing any human being could ever do. If Jesus is who he said he was, and I believe he is. And if you're still thinking, maybe he, maybe, if you're not convinced that he is who he said he was, I don't think there's anything that would be worth more investigation than that, to take a serious look at who Jesus Christ is. Because we can resist, we can turn, we can walk away from God. He gave us that ability when he gave us freedom to choose. Now, the other thing is this. If we are followers of Jesus, we can also resist the Holy Spirit. We can resist the Holy Spirit when he calls us to go deeper in our faith, deeper into Christ. We can can know Jesus and we can grow so far and then maybe something comes up in our lives that discourages us is a barrier. Maybe some horrible loss comes into our life. Maybe some circumstances that just knock us on our back, knock the wind out of our sails. Maybe whatever, whatever happens, sometimes we can, we, can, we can begin to just pull back and we get stuck and we don't keep moving forward in our faith. Well, the Holy Spirit can drag a person off into shame That's not what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit wants to go down under that root system in all of our lives. He wants to to do a transforming work that begins in this life when we turn our lives over to him and will continue on through this life till the day of our own resurrection when Jesus Christ comes again. And then we go on living with him for all of eternity. What does that look like? Well, it's not floating around playing a harp, okay? That's not what it is. I don't know who dreamed that up, but 
what it is. <clears throat> We're going to go on living in eternity, <clears throat> flourishing more and more, exploring more and more of the wonder of God's creation and the beauty that God created us to experience. And we'll have an eternity to do that. I think that's wonderful news. I, I don't think there's any better news. That's why it's called the good news. So my prayer this morning is that everyone in this room, our hearts are wide open to, to take Jesus at his word, put him to the test, come to him with a, and live with a repentant hearts so that, his, so that he can continue to reveal himself to us more deeply, more deeply, more deeply as our lives go on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today <clears throat> for your presence. And Lord, we are <clears throat> desiring, Lord, that you do reveal yourself to us, Lord, in this profound way that we've sought to express this morning through Paul's life. Lord, <clears throat> so I pray for those that are maybe making this choice for the first time <clears throat> to come to Christ. I pray, Lord, as they come, you will reveal yourself to them. <clears throat> I pray for every follower of Jesus in here who may have become discouraged or, <clears throat> or whatever, that Holy Spirit, we will, <clears throat> in the midst of our discouragement, not fall into shame, but instead, Lord, just continue to live with our hearts open and yielded to you so that you can lead us even in the middle of our pain and guide us through it, Lord. Heavenly Father, help us to keep our eyes upon the future, upon the day when we're going to see you and, and spend our eternity with you. But until that day, help us to be engaged with living here and letting this message be shared with our friends and our neighbors and people around us. Give us the same passion that Paul had to tell other people about that, about you. And we pray these things in Jesus' great name. Amen.